This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Uh, Let me start here. This is going to be a bizarre morning to find out more about Kenneth Law. And when I say that name, if you'd asked me that in March or April, it would have taken a few minutes for it to sort of sink in. And now I think it's a name that's becoming more notorious, where you just go, Kenneth Law. Yeah, I think I do. Yes, I definitely do. He's the Mississauga man. He's 57. And he's charged, they're going to be uh, announcing charges, but it was revealed yesterday that these are coming, 14 counts of second-degree murder, which are, you know, different charges than he was facing in the spring. What's he done? Well, he's originally arrested on allegations that he'd aided suicides by shipping people a potentially lethal substance. Lawyer for him, um, that's an interesting, do you, you know, do you take that case, quite a defense you got to provide. Um, because this initially came, word of this came from UK newspapers where they had tried to figure out someone close to a, a person had committed suicide and how did they do it? Well, somebody in Mississauga, Ontario mailed them something that had helped them. He was listing, you know, in essence, an ad on the internet on a website to allow people to get this particular substance. It's called sodium nitrite. And it's, in essence, it's supposed to cure meats that are deadly in high concentrations. So restaurants and packing facilities might order them in large bulk, uh, bulk numbers. But hundreds of these packages went out, not just in Canada, but to other countries as well. And if you go to an online forum that promotes suicide, and this is the problem with an unregulated, you know, wild, wild west internet, there's the potential for something like this to be there. Law told the Globe and Mail in April, once you know Canadian media, and this is why media is important, still really is, this is why Canadian media in April started sniffing around um, and trying to figure this out. And they were able to actually get an interview with him before police arrested him. I said, what? A journalist is able to call Kenneth Law in April. Like, we're going to think about this, I think, a couple of years from now, as it does appear this is maybe, just maybe, one of our most notorious criminals, should he be convicted, of all these charges. He's not a serial killer. This isn't Paul Bernardo from the uh, you know the late 80s, early 90s, which, who uh, obviously was charged with two specific murders of teen girls, but was accused of countless rapes and sexual assaults in, uh, after, they, after they arrested him. They realized, yeah, he's been involved in so much more than just the charges that he had. And of course, notoriously this summer, they moved him um, from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison. But I'm not saying we're going to talk about Kenneth Law in the same sentence. I'm not. But this, the fact that he did an interview before he got arrested, and here was his quote to the Globe and Mail. What, I'm selling a legal product. Quote, what the person does with it, I have no control. No, but you're profiting off of this. And I don't know how we could have a long conversation. And we probably should have it later in the morning, right, when we're, we're having a, you know, a, a beverage that's a little more loaded up than maybe a coffee. And we could discuss if someone wants to commit suicide, what are your obligations? How do you stop them? Well, you could talk them out of it. You could get them counseling. You could put your arm around them and say, everything's okay. You can push forward. But what you probably wouldn't do is go, I know just the thing, sodium nitrite. And that appears to be why these murder charges are going to be announced today around 10 o'clock. And this is no small, this isn't a few different occasions. Don't misread the 14 counts of second-degree murder with thinking Kenneth Law allegedly did something 14 times. 
Officers say they're looking at 1,200 packages that he's alleged to have shipped. It's rather remarkable. All these charges are Ontario charges. All these deaths are in Ontario. Nothing in the UK. Nothing in France. There was uh, there were parents of a 23-year-old in Paris that say, we got our stuff. Our, our son committed suicide. The story was in the, the papers in June, late June, early July. It was right around Canada Day is my recollection. And they said, we got our stuff from this guy in Mississauga. And they started to see the stories and they're like, that rings a bell. The light bulb goes off. So this means an automatic life sentence. If Crown attorneys can prove in court, you cause someone else death, either recklessly or intentionally, you're going to jail. And for a long, long time, he's 57 years old. And these stories are heartbreaking. Obviously, you've lost somebody in your life. You've lost most of these are parents who've lost a younger kid, although they're not all. I think the the victims start as low as 16. But there's there's a story about a 21 year old. Stephen Mitchell Sr. is quoted in this uh, recent Globe and Mail story. And his 21 year old died just this past March, a month before he does the interview. And uh, and was identified in charging documents as someone whose life, Mr. Law, allegedly played a role in ending. So it's something. But my goodness, as as uh, Daniel Brown put it, he's the president of the Criminal Lawyers Association. If successful, these charges and getting convictions on these charges, it makes him one of the most prolific serial murderers in Canada. So I got your attention now, I think, because the case is so um, has so many layers to it, so many chapters to it. And the guy pleading innocence, this isn't your, again, this is not your standard run of the mill. I'm going to run around and kill people. I'm going to run around and hurt people, maim people, assault people, kill people. I, maybe law is thinking there's nothing that I've done. I'm giving people a way out who want a way out. I was in, in I, I was so over the story, so all, all over the story of Jack Kervorkian. You know, Dr. Death, he would give people a way out, but that was at the end of life. And he was counseling patients who simp and families who were like, please end her suffering. Please end his suffering. And he'd go to jail. He'd get out. He'd appeal a case. He'd be free again. He would do it again. He would go back to court. That, he was a Detroit area doctor for the longest time. There were many, many. I think Robert De Niro or Al Pacino rather played him in, uh, in a TV movie. So we'll be watching this a little later on today at 10 o'clock. Matt Cardi is going to be uh, our own Matt Cardi from the 640 Toronto uh, newsroom is going to be at this particular announcement. One other thing I want to get to in the next couple minutes is COP28 is winding down. This is this massive um, environmental conference in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. And I talked about this about a week and a half ago going, what are all these mayors doing going to this? There's 782 Canadian delegates, the mayor of Guelph, who's been on the show a fair bit, Cam Guthrie, uh, went. The mayor of Kitchener is there. The mayor of Blue Mountains is there. I did, it's multiple mountains. I didn't know that until I mentioned who he was. He's the mayor of 7,000 people. And he took the carbon footprint of the other 6,999 people and put it into like triplicate for flying to Dubai, he did fly commercial, not on a private plane. Okay, the mayor of Blue Mountains doesn't have a private plane. Okay, but he does fly to Dubai, stays there for nine or ten days, gets wine and dined, gets a nice gift bag in leaving. And I'm reading this morning that climate activists say the 2023 UN COP is quote on the verge of complete failure. Huh? 
Oil-producing nations secured the removal of language calling for a phase-out of fossil fuels from the summit's draft agreement. I think you've heard me in the last several shows about this. Should we use fewer fossil fuels? Absolutely. There's definitely ways we could preserve um, the environment. There's definitely ways we could do things a little differently. We recycle. We try to take public transit. Maybe it's an electric vehicle. Maybe it's solar panels, wind, whatever. But um, I really resent that we tell developing nations, no fossil fuels for you. We got to phase these. It's 2023, guys. We got to phase these out. And they're like, but but we don't have what you have. We don't have indoor plumbing. We don't have condominium buildings. We don't have air conditioning. The world's getting warmer, which it is. And their concept is, oh, no big. Our concept is no big deal. Just just do what we do. Well, they don't have what we have. Ayed Al-Khatani is uh, one of the representatives at the conference. He made this point two days ago on Sunday, saying there's no single solution when it comes to energy efficiency at this conference. There is no single solution or path to achieve a sustainable energy future. We need realistic approaches to tackle emission, one that uh, enable economic growth, help eradicate poverty, and increase resilience at the same time. In this respect, I wish COP28 every success in, in, in going down the history as the cup of unity, action, and delivery. Yeah, look, climate change is something, but you do know more people die of extreme cold than extreme heat. You're five times more likely to die from drowning than from climate change. Do we, have, do we need a drowning justice conference? Do we need a drowning emergency? Do you have drowning anxiety? I would bet that you don't. This conference was a sham, a travesty from the get-go in terms of looking to get stuff done. And anybody could have told you that the people paying for all these small town mayors to go are going to have a high influence and a high degree of push and pull as to what gets signed and what doesn't. It's rather remarkable. A lot of people fell for this. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. All right. April Engelberg uh, has run for city council before. She's a lawyer. Joins us right now. We love talking city issues with her. It's great to have you on this morning. Good morning, Greg. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Listen, I saw this story about Phil Verster, who's the CEO of Metrolinx, and I saw renewed calls for Phil Verster to be fired. And I'm thinking, is this an old story? But it wasn't. It feels like twice a week now, April. We have stories that somebody somewhere, usually opposition members of provincial parliament, but sometimes city councilors too, want to get rid of the Metrolink CEO. And the bottom line of it is, is that There's news conferences constantly about the Eglinton LRT, and they still don't know when it will open. Exactly. And worst of all, the the last update from Phil Verster was that he doesn't even know. He's not going to, quote, guess what year it's going to open. So we don't even know that it's going to open next year. Yeah. I I mean, I think there'd been some hope, right, that it would be fall of 2024. But there's an awful lot of skeptical people uh, about that. Look, it's one thing I always say to people, I probably would almost because of my geography living out in Durham region, I'd almost never be on it. But emphasize for our listeners what this would do to bring people to Young Street so that they could get to a subway line faster. Or just just the businesses where like there's been so much construction torn up for this for now, now well over a decade, April. Definitely. So it's a huge, huge project. It. it- goes very far both east and west along Eglinton and it allows so many more people to take the TTC instead of driving. That's really important. And back to the opening date that we don't know when it's going to be. My new joke is let's have a Toronto lottery. Everybody guesses what date the Eglinton LRT will open and then the winner gets free TTC for life. 
not just to, not just until it opens, which could be almost life. It could be like about eighteen months, maybe. Uh, you want fr- yeah, free transit for know. life. We don't know the year apparently. You're okay. We didn't know about your spending platform. This could be forty years of. What if an eighteen year old wins it? It could be sixty years of free transit, April. It's worth it. It's, it's worth, worth it. it. <laughs> if, the, if the Metrolink CEO can't tell us when it's going to open, and just a random Torontonian can, they definitely deserve free TTC for life. Um, you noticed a story. Uh, Olivia Chow was out front and center talking about streetcar. She wants to make this King Street uh, Street streetcar move faster. Um, an area uh, you know well, Bay and Adelaide, really busy there. Brookfield Place around there, the path around there is closed to traffic for the rest of the week because they're going to put streetcars on that street. Let me ask you this in general. Is the streetcar uh, still a valid and efficient way of transport in a big city? There's a lot of New York doesn't have them. London doesn't have them. Are we are we still getting value from putting streetcars into the city of Toronto, do you think? Big question. So I want to say I'm one of the original complainers about the King streetcar, mm-hmm. and I definitely will defend it because it has over 84,000 people riding it every day, which is more people than, than ride, for example, the Shepherd subway line or some of the subway stations up until um, the end of line one. So it's definitely very important for us to get around downtown, especially until the Ontario line opens. But what I will say is I don't agree with the current plan of while we have the Ontario line running, the plan is for the King Street car to run temporarily. But by temporarily, we mean like 10 plus years along Richmond and Adelaide. Sorry, sorry, not the King Street car, the Queen Street car to be running along Richmond and Adelaide while Queen is temporarily closed in certain sections for the Ontario line. And I do want to give credit to Brad Bradford because this was in his mayoral campaign and I thought it was a very good idea mm. that instead the Queen Street car should be diverted along King Street and we should just have King Street as the major transit corridor. I feel like I've been, that's so interesting you mentioned that. And in the story we both looked at last night, April, the, the I'm, I feel like I'm driving a lot in the city after the show as opposed to just heading back home. So I'm going and I'm, I'm meeting people, whatnot. I'm seeing a lot more of these um, of these traffic agents and they're all along King Street. They're at these major intersections. You're probably noticing that as well, even walking or, or taking, uh, taking transit. There's, they're obviously paying for a ton of agents to be at these major intersections, aren't they? Yeah, so as a reminder, back in 2018, we launched the King Street pilot. And or and the idea is it, the King Street is supposed to be for streetcars and for pedestrians and not as much for cars. So you can't drive more than like a block during, um, along the main part mm-hmm. of King Street. But the issue actually is after so much work and so much study was put into this, the King Streetcar is actually now moving slower than it was prior to the pilot, which is awful. And... So what Olivia Chow is now saying is that she's putting in traffic agents at these at these major parts, which is definitely a step forward. But that's not the only issue. A lot, another issue is that you'll get no streetcar for like 20 minutes and then suddenly you'll get five in a row. So it's also an issue with the streetcars themselves. Yeah, that changes a little bit. Um, so city council doesn't meet today, but they do meet tomorrow. And part of the infrastructure committee's plan tomorrow is adopt uh, the idea of well, reducing some of the waste, but they're going to force retailers to accept reusable bags starting uh, March 1st of 2024. But if you don't bring your own, you got to pay a dollar for each reusable bag. That ju- that price jumps to $2 on May 1st, 2025. So even if you're going to like a shopper's drug mart and you've got $18 worth of stuff and you can't carry it uh, home back through the busy city and you don't have a bag, they're going to charge you two bucks a year and a half from now. That's I don't know that retailers are going to love this, let alone people that get frustrated that they're not taking their cloth bags everywhere, April. 
Definitely. And I know it's definitely made with good intentions to save the environment by making reusable bags mandatory and having a large fee. But in reality, I think sometimes the solution is just a paper bag because sometimes, for example, when you get groceries delivered, suddenly you have 20 reusable bags. Whereas prior, the plastic bag, you could actually, you know, reuse as garbage bags or something. And so often it just creates more waste by having mandatory reusable bags. They just end up in the garbage and we have dozens of them in our home. Greg, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I lost you there just on the microphone. But we um, we have dozens of them at home, and we end up having to buy plastic bags just for, you know, bathroom garbage, cat litter. I'm a cat guy. Like, we like we got cat litter we, we put out in plastic bags uh, every single – because you can't use reusable bags for any of that. So it's complicated. I think the city's going to hear from merchants who are saying, we're already struggling enough. We want people to stop at, at our convenience store. We want people to – buy food, buy flowers for their you know, wife or husband on the way home. But when you're making us charge for bags, people are going to go somewhere else. Exactly. It, it's not necessarily meeting the goal that we're looking for. It's, it's a good idea in general to try to mm-hmm. create less waste. But sometimes these mandatory bags are actually creating more waste. April Engelberg uh, joining us on Toronto today. Loved having you on. Let's do it next uh, next Tuesday, April. Thanks for the time today. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Greg. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. We love talking all things Russia with uh, Marcus Kolga from DisinfoWatch.org. And he joins us now on Toronto Today. It's great to have you on. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Greg. Really concerning stuff, isn't it? And yet probably not terribly surprising, Marcus? Uh, well, no, it's, it's not really surprising at all. Uh, Vladimir Putin has... Many people may know just uh, surprise, surprise, announced that he's going to run uh, for another term in office uh, this uh, this winter uh, for the, in the uh, Russian presidential elections. Um, he changed uh, the Russian constitution just a couple of years ago um, to allow him to effectively remain in power until at least 2036, probably beyond that. Um, so he is, uh, in essence, uh, Russia's dictator for life. And uh, one of the things that Vladimir Putin can't tolerate is opposition, is mm. criticism. Uh, and that's been going on for the past 20 years. Anyone who does uh, pose a, a, a credible uh, threat to his power through criticism, um, these people are assassinated. They're gunned down like Boris Nemtsov was in, in 2015. Mm. They're poisoned uh, and thrown into prison. And so the fact that uh, Alexei Navalny has now suddenly disappeared, basically uh, just a, d- a day or two after uh, Putin announced his uh, his candidacy for for re-election is uh, is really no surprise. Yeah, the timing is is obviously um, not a coincidence as opposed to quite coincidental. Is there any concern, though? Did they have to treat Navalny right to prevent any sort of uprising whatsoever in Russia? Or would any kind of uprising be snuffed out rather immediately because it's Vladimir Putin and and basically he's in power and the uprising isn't? Well, great question, Greg. I mean, uh, when Navalny was away, remember, he was poisoned in 2020 within a hair of his life. I mean, uh, his he was lucky enough that the pilot on the plane that he was on when the poison was taking effect, uh, you know, he, he landed in the middle of Russia, got to a hospital and that saved him. But Navalny was taken into exile, of course, for a year and returned uh, to Russia in 2021 in January. Mm-hmm. And there were massive uprisings then. Um, uh, protesting his detention, because as soon as he landed, he was detained. Um, tens of thousands uh, of Russians took to the streets, um, and uh, upwards of uh, nearly 10,000 people were arrested. There were, uh, there, the statistics show that there were 600 children 
that were that were arrested. Um, and there are videos mm-hmm. of kids being beaten up, uh, elderly people being beaten up on the streets. And so, you know, uh, this sort of violent repression has uh, suppressed the appetite of, of Russians uh, to rise up. And certainly that repression has intensified over the past two years uh, of this war. Uh, you know, this regime just doesn't tolerate any sort of form of dissent whatsoever. Uh, and so, uh, you know, keeping keeping the Volney alive, sure. I mean, uh, it, it has been important up to now, but uh, I don't think that we would, mm. even if he did disappear, if he was found dead, I'm not sure that there would be too many, up, uh, there would be much of an uprising at this point. We have just over a minute, but Vladimir Zelensky is in the United States today and he'll meet with Joe Biden. He was there yesterday in Washington as well, talking to military channels, but he's trying to save this Ukraine aid package. Like a lot of things, things have in, in, inevitably become political and there's a bit of a right-left divide uh, to, to this struggle right now to rescue this military aid package. I don't doubt he'll go to a lot of Western democracies in the next few months, maybe Canada again included, and yeah. say and, and want to just ensure that there's some resolve to keep fighting here for Ukraine, correct? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, he'll. I'm sure he'll come to Canada. I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll tour the, the European capitals and, and beyond. Um, you know, I suspect that there are, uh, that cooler heads will prevail within the GOP. There are good people that are actual uh, conservatives, traditional conservatives, um, who understand um, that uh, it's in the U.S. best interest to uh, f- to help Ukraine defeat uh, Putin, and and uh, you know I'm I'm optimistic mm-hmm. that they'll overcome that partisan divide. Marcus uh, Kolga, disinfowatch.org. Uh, love having you on, and love these conversations. We'll hope for uh, better things to hear about uh, Alexei Navalny. Thanks for the time today. Anytime. Thanks for being on, Greg.